This morning's scripture passage comes from 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 15 through 23. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand, and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon." And they burned the house of God, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a pro proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see all of you this morning. If I haven't met you, my name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. At Trinity, we have two Pastor Eric's. We're looking to add a third, if you know anyone. Just kidding. We're not. Um, I debated whether I should share this, but I figured I would. When I woke up this morning, I had, like, um, blockage in one nostril. Sorry for that. TMI. But the reason I'm sharing it is because my wife has told me when I, when I have that and when I'm preaching, sometimes... I've, I've been known to do some involuntary snorting, so I'm sorry in advance if I do that. I'm going to try not to. All right, transition from that. <laughs> Today we come to our final message in our sermon series on the book of Chronicles called Renew. Next week we're going to be starting a new sermon series. It's going to be called Questions That God Asks Us. And that sermon series, we'll be sharing more about it, will be for the Lenten season. We're going to be looking at some of the most uh, penetrating and probing questions that God asks us throughout the Bible, and those questions are designed to show us things about ourselves and to reveal more of, of who He is. So that'll be coming up next week. For this week's sermon, I was all set to preach on Second Chronicles chapter 20. That was on my schedule. It's a story of Jehoshaphat, and it's an incredible story of how God meets us in our fear, so I was really looking forward to that. But the more that I studied, the more I thought that 
Um, we'd be moving on to the next sermon series next week. I just kept coming back to this passage here at the very end of the book of Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 36. And I felt like this, this is going to be the right way to close out our series on the book of Chronicles with this final passage, with this final conclusion to the entire book. So this, this text that we just read, that Annalisha just read for us, chapter 36, 15 through 23, this is the grand finale of the book of, of the book of Chronicles. If you remember how the book of Chronicles began, if you want to go back and look at it in chapter 1, it begins with the word Adam. And then it carries us from Adam, the very first human being, the creation of the world, all the way here to the return from exile. Begins with Adam, calls to mind his exile, Adam and Eve's exile from the garden. And here it ends with another exile and return. When I think of grand finales, when I think of that word, I think of fireworks, firework shows. A good firework show is always teasing you, and you're always wondering, was that the grand finale? The blasts are going off, and it's just like everywhere, and you're like, maybe that was the grand finale. Maybe that was the grand finale. But when it comes, a good fireworks show, you know, oh, that was the grand finale. That was awesome, and you're left in awe. You know, on the other hand, a, a lame fireworks show, it leaves you at the end going, was that the grand finale? That's it? That was lame. Now, I don't know how you felt when you were listening to Annalisha read chapter 36 of the book of Chronicles, Second Chronicles. Maybe you were thinking, that's it? Probably had a lot of questions come up as, as you were listening to that. I can't promise that we'll answer and address all of your questions, but I want to look at how this 2 Chronicles 36 functions as a grand finale to the book of Chronicles, and even more than that, it actually functions as a grand finale to the whole Old Testament story. Because the conclusion here, this final chapter in Chronicles, as it's telling the story of creation to the time of the return from exile, actually in the traditional order of the Hebrew Bible called the Tanakh, the order that Jesus would have been familiar with, the order that was prevalent in the first century, this was the last thing you would have read. This was the last chapter. This was the conclusion to the story. And there are fireworks in this passage. When we see it in the context of the whole story, especially when we see it in the context of the whole Bible, especially as we see it in light of Jesus, we'll see that it's a double grand finale that gives us incredible hope for two things. One, the rediscovering over and over again of God's compassion for us. And two, the discovery of God's commission to us. Renewed relationship with God, renewed purpose from God. Those are the two big themes of Chronicles as we've been looking at it for a number of weeks. These two things always go together, renewed relationship with God and renewed purpose from God. If you're following along with our reading, our daily Bible reading, CBR, we've been reading the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 1, 
after Jesus had already told his disciples in Luke 24 that he was sending them out. He said, I'm, I'm going to send you out. You have a mission to take my message. You have a, a mission to be my witnesses to all the nations. They ask him a question in Acts chapter 1. They say, wait, Jesus, before you go, we have a question. Is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I want to read for you a quote from Richard Lovelace on this question that the apostles asked Jesus. It's there for you in your reflection quotes in your bulletin. Lovelace says, The apostles were revealing the natural gravitation of their hearts, away from outward mission towards self-centered enjoyment of kingdom blessings. He's saying, in other words, they were asking, when are you going to shower all your blessings, remove all suffering and sin from the world? When are we going to get to party and enjoy all that? And he says, it goes on, Jesus responds by telling them that the greatest blessing they can know within ordinary history, the full empowering of the Holy Spirit will only come to them in the context of outward movement in mission. In other words, the blessing that we receive from God, it's always sending us out. And our full enjoyment of the blessing and the grace and the love of God is experienced not only inwardly, but as we follow his commission outward. So we're going to look at two points as we look at this conclusion this morning. God, God's compassion, the compassion of God for us, and then the commission of God to us, that we are commissioned by God. Let's first look at compassion from God. If you look with me again at verses 15 and 16, they summarize not only the final chapter here, chapter 36 of the book of Chronicles, Second Chronicles, the last four kings, but they really summarize for us the whole book of Chronicles. And like I was saying, they summarize, in a sense for us, the whole of the Old Testament story from Adam all the way here to Second Chronicles 36, the history of God's relationship to humanity onward. This is the story of the Old Testament, and this is our story. And as we look at 15 all the way to the end of 2 Chronicles, we see three major themes emerge in God's relationship to us, to humanity. We see how these themes intertwine, how they interrelate, how they create a tension that's only finally resolved in Jesus in the New Testament. I want to share these three themes that come up here at the end of Chronicles. The first one is God's persistent compassion. That's theme number one. It's there in verse 15. It says, because God had compassion on his people, that he kept sending his word persistently to call his people back to himself. It was his compassion. This is in this major summary theme of the story, as we come to the end, the author of Chronicles is saying, don't miss this as you get to the end of the story, the conclusion. The theme that is carrying this story forward is the compassion of God. What is then the compassion of God? What is that? What does it mean? Well, it means, using the language from verse 16, that God so longs to give us the remedy for our sin. And for our suffering, that he will keep pursuing us, that he'll keep chasing after us, that he will keep sending his word 
to us. A few definitions here of compassion from some theologians. Louis Burkhoff says, compassion means, God's compassion means, he pities those in misery, and he is ever ready to relieve our distress. John Frame says, God sympathizes with our distress, and it moves him into action. Readiness, God is always at the ready. His sympathy that God actually feels with us, the pain and the hurt that sin and suffering cause us. And this is what moves him into action. This is what carries the story forward. He longs to remove all our human suffering and brokenness. This is what stirs in the heart of God. And it's not just compassion. We see it's persistent compassion. Every other use of that word persistence in the Old Testament is translated rising early. I was looking up this word and I said, there's one, one place where it's translated persistence and all the other places it's translated rising early. I think it's meant to give us this picture of God that every morning as he rises again, as it were, that he longs to show us compassion, that he longs that we might turn ourselves to him, that he never tires day after day after day rising again in compassion for his people. This is who God is. He's persistently pursuing his people by sending his word of compassion out to turn back to him so that we might have the remedy. That's theme number one. Theme number two, there in verse 16, is the persistent rejection of people. Persistent compassion of God the persistent rejection of people. It says in verse 16 that although God was pursuing his people, they kept mocking, despising, and scoffing at God's call to return to him. Through the message and through the ministry of the prophets, in many different ways, what did the prophets say? How would we summarize their message? It was turn back to God. Turn away from substituting him with idolatry. Turn away from injustice in the way that you're treating people. Turn back to God. Not only did they not listen, it says that people mocked and scoffed until the end of verse 16, until there was no remedy. The picture here is of humanity, sick people refusing the remedy that they, they so desperately seek, and that we so, we so desperately need. To share a, a story in light of this, uh, for, from, from me and Amelia's story, our, our first fight in our relationship had to do with something like this. Uh, we were young and in love. We had no conflicts. We had no fights. This is when we were dating. And I'll never forget our first fight because it happened when I got the flu. So I had the flu, and I'm very much a wimp when it comes to sickness and flu and all that kind of stuff. So she came over, and she said, I want to care for you and help you. Here, take this medicine. I said, no, I don't want to take medicine. I don't want that medicine. She said, no, take this medicine. Like, don't you want to feel better? Don't you want to get better? Here is the cure. Here is the remedy for what you feel. I said, no, I don't want that medicine. And that just led to one thing to another, and that was our first fight. 
and blow up in our relationship. But that's very frustrating. Maybe you have kids, those of you who are parents or you've seen this happening with kids. They get sick, something's happening, they need to take an antibiotic, but it's disgusting and they don't want to take that medicine and so you're trying to force it down their throat. You're saying, don't you want to get better? You must get better. Here's the remedy. And it's so frustrating. We say, how can I help you if you won't take the medicine? That's the theme that's being pictured here for us. God is like a physician offering the remedy to us. Sick people. And we not only say, no thanks, we mock him. We despise it. And we reject it. That's theme number two. There's a third theme here. That's the hardest theme of all to talk about. And that's the passion of God against sin and the suffering it causes. And the word for that in Scripture is wrath. If you're here and you're still exploring Christianity, you have questions about the Bible, about Jesus, this concept of wrath is probably something you're uncomfortable with. And for my Christian friends, when we read about wrath, when we read a description of what wrath looks like, we're also very uncomfortable. I was uncomfortable thinking, let's do a grand finale message, and oh, we're going to have to talk about the wrath of God. I've talked to many people who say, my God would never have wrath. The God that I know, the God that I worship is not a God of wrath. He's only a God of love. I cannot believe in a God of wrath. But what is wrath? First of all, the wrath of God is described in the Bible as God's passion against sin, and against all the suffering and the evil that it causes. There's a tension between God's compassion and his wrath, as you can imagine. On the one hand, God's compassion says, I want to relieve human sin and suffering. And on the other hand, his wrath says, I am passionately committed to eliminate sin and suffering in the world. There's a tension there, but there's also a sense, if you would think about this with me for a moment, there's also a sense in which they require one another. Think about it like this. In order for God to be a God of compassion and love, he must also be a God of wrath. A God who is indifferent and nonchalant toward that which severs and separates us from him, toward that which unravels and disintegrates his design for us and for his world, That is not a loving God. That is an indifferent God, as it's been said before. The opposite of love is not hate, but indifference. How can you have compassion on someone and not have a passionate hatred against that which causes them pain, which destroys their life and harms them? It's why we can say we hate cancer or illness or suffering. It's why we can curse it. Love is that which can lead us to be angry, to be passionate against injustice and oppression and the sin that keeps people away from God. But there is a tension there because we know that sin is not just something external to us. It's something that happens within us. It's something that we do and that we choose. So hold on to that question for a moment. How does that tension get resolved? There are two more aspects to God's wrath from this passage. I think it's very important for us to note, especially if we struggle with this idea of God's wrath. How can he be a God of wrath? 
There's two ways that God's wrath is described here. One, it's described with a certain sense of indirectness. I'll explain that. And also, it's described, as we read the entire story here at the end, with a sense of incongruence. So, indirectness and incongruence. First, indirectness. God's wrath, this theme number three, is essentially God allowing theme number two to play out to its natural end. Verse 17 says, God, he gave them into his hand, into the hand of the king of Babylon. And what happened when the people were handed over to the king of Babylon was terrible. There There was suffering. It's hard for us to read. There was an end to the temple. The land was scarred and burned. It says the king of Babylon, or the Chaldeans, had no compassion. So God's wrath is described as a handing over, a giving over. In Romans chapter 1, God's wrath is also described in this way. It says, there is a handing over. God gave them up, Romans 1.24, to the lusts and desires of their hearts. God gave them up to the dishonorable passions. God gave them up to a debased mind. In essence, the way that the wrath of God is described in these texts, is God saying, if this is what you want, then here you go, I would like to hand that to you. You can have it. That God, though he so longs for us to experience the remedy of his compassionate love for us, when we persist in scoffing and rejecting and despising his remedy, wrath is God handing us over to what we want. and to the experience that all other remedies that we look to will not only not heal us, but make us sicker. Romans 2, 3 through 5, why does God do this? Romans 2 says, it's not the wrath of God that will lead you to repentance. It's actually knowing that even, even as God hands you over, he is always willing to take you back. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. That's the indirectness with which Scripture speaks of God's wrath. There's also an incongruence between the compassion and the wrath of God throughout Chronicles and the whole biblical story. The way God's character is described in Exodus 34, as God reveals, He says, This is who I am. I am the gracious and compassionate God who extends loving kindness and forgiveness to the thousands generation." And also visiting iniquity to the third and fourth generation. This is what I mean by the imbalance. 1,000 verses 3 and 4. God's compassion to the thousands. And this is what we see here, this huge imbalance, even in Chronicles. From Adam all the way to Zedekiah, the final king of Judah. Thousands of years of this persistent rejection of God saying, here is the remedy. I long to free you. And people saying no, and mocking, and rejecting, and despising. And we read here that it was 70 years of time away from the land, thousands of years to 70 years. God says, let the land rest for 70 years, and then I will bring you back in compassion. That's the tensions in the story. There's a slide just to summarize God's compassion for sinners and sufferers, but our persistent resistance to God's compassion 
but God's compassion against sin and the source of all human suffering. How does all this play out? How is the tension resolved? We see in Chronicles, how does the book end? It doesn't end with wrath, it ends with compassion. It doesn't end with exile, it ends with return. God is working in human history to draw people back to himself. And as we see at the end of 2 Chronicles, to recommission them, to rebuild, and to restart. So as we look at the whole story of Chronicles, we see somehow theme one wins out over themes two and three. But as we go on in the story, 2 Chronicles, this, this, this ends in about the late 400s B.C., and so the story continues to go on. It wasn't just 70 years where Israel was struggling, where Judah was struggling to rebuild. It went on and on to 400 to 490 years. And the tension started to build up again. How can God be a God of compassion and allow sin and suffering to remain in his world, to remain in us? And ultimately, this drives us to Jesus. Only in Jesus is this tension resolved. In Jesus, we see the compassion of God entered into human history in the flesh. The gospel writers do something very unique as they're telling us about Jesus. They give us sometimes a window. They open up his heart, the heart of Jesus. What is Jesus thinking? What is he feeling as he's walking and meeting people who are broken by sin, who are rejecting and mocking him? More than anything else, when we get a window into the heart of Jesus, it tells us he was moved with compassion. This is what moved him into a world of sin and suffering. In Matthew 9, it says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The one who was moved with compassion to heal, the one who was the remedy for sinners and sufferers, Throughout his ministry and culminating on the cross, he was mocked. The compassion of God in the flesh, rejected and scoffed at. And on the cross, he took on and received the full force of the passion of God's wrath against sin and suffering at its source. And so on the cross, the tension is, is resolved and only in Jesus. That there on the cross we see the seriousness of God's passionate hatred towards sin, toward everything that separates us from him. And we see at the same time God's unrelenting compassion, his desire that stirs in his heart to relieve us of sin and suffering and brokenness. Seen together on the cross, it resolves the tension. How can God eliminate sin and suffering and not eliminate us? And as it comes to us personally, it shows us how God responds to our own persistent resistance to him, to even our despising and mocking, and also how much God longs personally to set us free from sin and brokenness. On the cross, Jesus was exiled for us so we could return home without fear of ever being cast out. There God is saying to us, I will suffer the worst for you, so you never have to. 
What we deserve, what we choose is wrath, no remedy, but what we get is compassion and the remedy that sets us free. A few words of application on this. For those who are suffering right now, be comforted to know of the persistent and the relentless compassion of God. You are not being punished by God when you suffer. Your punishment was borne by Jesus. And what, what helps us most when, when we're suffering, when we're dealing with some pain in our lives? Isn't it the, the presence and the encouragement of other people who have suffered? And even more so, the presence and the encouragement of other people who have suffered something similar to what we're suffering. And even more so, the presence and the encouragement of people who have suffered something worse than what we have suffered. The cross gives us the comfort of all those things. God himself, he hates your suffering. He is passionate to rid you of it. And he has proven it by suffering himself with you and for you. He knows tears. He knows suffering. He knows exile. He suffers with you. We also have with that the hope of resurrection. Here in Chronicles, we see the exile, what seemed like a death to the people of God and to the land of Judah and Jerusalem, was not the end. There was a resurrection. This story ends in resurrection. And so it is in the story of Jesus. Whatever you are suffering will come to an end and will give way to an eternal remedy. Return and resurrection are the last word. They are the grand finale. So we hold on to hope. Even when we don't understand, even when our suffering threatens to undo us, we hold on to the hope of resurrection. For those who are struggling with sin, it's not the wrath of God that will change you, that will set you free. It's not shame or guilt or trying harder, but it's an experience of the compassion of God that will set you free. Whatever you're struggling with, lust, pride, anger, control, living for the approval of others, living only for comfort, at the root in all those things, what's driving us is we're looking for a remedy. We're looking for a remedy for that which is empty within us. We're looking for a remedy for that which is broken within us. And God says to us, in so many words, how's that working for you? And as we read from Luke chapter 15, at the very slightest turn, when we turn back to God in the story of the prodigal son, we see as soon as that slightest turn is made, God is moved with compassion and he runs to us, to welcome us into his embrace, into his kiss, into his family as, our, as his beloved son and daughter. And that is what sets us free from sin. It is impossible to outsin God's compassion. Compassion from God. Now I want to look at how this passage shows us that those who have experienced the compassion from God are those who are commissioned by God. The people who returned to the land were not just called to come and enjoy, enjoy the land, enjoy life again, come back to your homeland. They were called to come and join in God's mission of rebuilding. 
Second Chronicles 36 is, by scholars, sometimes called the Old Testament Great Commission. The exiles were showing compassion in their enslavement and their estrangement again and again, but God's persistent compassion drew them back into the land and invited them to return to him and to the land and to engage in the work of rebuilding the land and the temple. And we see that happened in verse 20 when the Babylonians were set aside, when Cyrus, this Persian king, came to power. And in a very surprising and an unexpected way, God used this foreign king to call his people back to rebuild, to come back to the land. Many, many New Testament scholars believe that Jesus patterned his great commission on Second Chronicles 36. Let me just show a, a little table here, some of these parallels. We see in Second Chronicles, Cyrus says, he's given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Jesus says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. It says, may the Lord his God be with him, those who go. Jesus says, surely I am with you to the end of the age. The very last words in the text, let him go up. The final command and call of the Old Testament. Jesus says, go therefore, that's the last command in the book of Matthew. The mission of the returned exiles, they were charged to build a house, a temple, God's temple in Jerusalem, in Judah. Jesus says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching them. Don't draw people into the temple in Jerusalem, but you are the temple that is to extend the presence and the message of God into all nations wherever you go. So the point with all these parallels, just as the exile and return in Chronicles and the Old Testament ended with a commission, so Jesus' exile on the cross and his return and his resurrection also leads us to a commissioning. The church is commissioned to bring Jesus to the world, and here in Jesus is where we encounter the presence of God and find the compassion of God as the remedy for sin and suffering. A few final applications as we close. This means as we look at this commission, as we look at this call to mission in context, that each of us personally, our families, our church, we're to be known as people, as a community of persistent compassion. Practically flesh that out. That God's compassion to us in the gospel shapes what we say to others, how we say it, and how we treat others, what we do. What we say. The most compassionate thing we can do for another person is to speak about the remedy of the gospel. We do that for each other in our Christian community. We do that in our families, to our spouses, and to our kids. And we do that in our relationships with those who don't yet believe. And what compassion shows us is that as we move in, we don't move in to speak first, but we move in to listen first. In Jesus, God himself felt, he experienced, he saw, and he ultimately bore the pain of our sin and suffering with us and for us. So before we speak to others, compassion would call us first to listen and to feel with them. What are the remedies the best remedies that they are trying out. 
How has sin broken them? Where are they suffering? And there, gently, winsomely, simply, we speak words of compassion, pointing them to the compassionate one, Jesus. It not only frames how or what we are to say, it also frames, compassion frames how we are to say it. There's a quote, a very poignant quote in your bulletin from Francis Schaeffer. He says, biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. So we can believe the right things, we can say the right things to other people, but if it's devoid of compassion, then it's ugly. It drives people away from God. So Christian friends, when we act toward others without compassion, it's a sign that we've forgotten the gospel. We've forgotten how persistent how relentless God has been in his pursuit and his compassion of us. And lastly, not only does this commission to compassion frame what we say, how we say it, but also what we do. The presence that we have in all the spheres of our relationship. All the spheres of our relationships. We're called to demonstrate compassion in how we treat the people who are suffering that God brings into our lives. And I think we should look at that in the spheres of our relationships. First, those closest to us, our spouses, our kids, our neighbors, our coworkers. When somebody is sinful and suffering, like all of us are, our response we are called to give is to lead with compassion, not judgment, not to create conflict, but to lead with compassion. As we close this series on the book of Chronicles, we've been saying this all the way through from the beginning to the end, that Chronicles was written to lead us into a rediscovery of who we are and why we're here. And as we close it out, let me just remind all of us that in Jesus, who are we? We are those who have been loved by the persistent compassion of God. And why are we here? We're called to speak and to show that compassion to others. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, gracious and compassionate God, I pray right now for everyone here, myself, one thing that we know that never changes is that you are a God of compassion. One thing that we know about ourselves that never changes is that we struggle with sin and we struggle with all kinds of suffering. And so I pray you would meet us where we're at with the compassion that we need, that we would turn ourselves towards you and find your face to be the face of grace and compassion for whatever we are facing. Bring comfort to those who are suffering and in pain. Bring freedom for those who are stuck in the shame of their sin. Drive us once again to the ultimate demonstration of your compassion for us, that you would suffer the worst so we would never have to, that you would take away our sin, and may that refresh us, renew us, and send us out 
to be people of compassion in Jesus' name. Amen.